0: our church planting resident, Um, and when we said those words to you, maybe a few months ago you were here when you heard us talk about Mark's uh, role on our team, um, or maybe you read in our weekly email about our church planting resident, um, my guess is that a lot of us didn't really even have a grasp of what exactly that would look like or mean. Um, Mostly the work that Mark is doing with Life Church right now is behind the scenes with the staff, with the elders, Uh, we're doing some like training and formation with him, uh, because Mark aspires to plant Resurrection Church in Statesville. Um, We came to know Mark through the Pillar Network. We're glad members of the Pillar Network. Pillar allows us to invest in church planting efforts and church revitalization efforts around the world, really. Um, But uh, through Pillar, we got to know Mark and saw that there was an opportunity um, to invest in not just him, but in the people that he would lead and the church that, Lord willing, he would lead in the future. And so um, I tell you that because, like, I hope that you know that this is never all about life church, right? This is never about building the kingdom of life church. And actually, one of the things that we care far more than we care about, like, how many people are in our building on a Sunday morning, we care about how many people we're training and ultimately sending to take the gospel to the nations. And far more than we care about, like, how much money we receive. We really care about like how much money we're able to give away to see that the gospel goes to people who have never heard the name of Jesus and to see that there are healthy churches in places where right now there aren't healthy churches. And so um, Pillar has allowed us to do that. And our relationship with Mark is even just an extension of that. And so Mark's going to preach today to us um, from Joshua 13 and 14. He's just going to keep walking through our series in Joshua with the text that I told him he had to preach from. But um, before he comes up, let me just tell you a few things about Mark so that you can get to know him a little bit better before we listen to him for the next 35 minutes or so. Um, Number one, uh, Mark is a Duke fan, which means that he is a person of unquestioned wisdom and sound judgment, right? And so obviously we can trust the words that come from his mouth. It's just gonna be impeccable, I'm sure. Um, all right, so that's, that's Mark. Uh, number two, uh, Mark has been trained like really well, even before he came to us. And so he has an undergrad degree from Liberty um, and an MDiv, a graduate degree from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's one of the seminaries that we would just trust really implicitly. And so we're grateful for the fact that many people before us have poured into and invested in Mark. Uh, Mark has a better half. Her name is Catherine. Um, Catherine's a delight. Um, Together, they have a young son, Tyler, and one more on the way. I let that slip in the first service, and I wasn't entirely sure that that was, like, common knowledge. And so I was grateful when he told me that other people were already aware of that. And so I didn't let any cats out of any bags. Uh, Speaking of cats, Mark has a cat or two. Um, We won't hold that against him. But um, anyway, uh, more important than any of these things. um, As I've gotten to know Mark, like, I've gotten to see um, the character that God has shaped in him over the years that Mark has followed our Lord. In the world, when leaders are assessed and evaluated, competence matters more than character. In other words, what a leader can do matters more than who a leader is in the world. I hope you know that that is not how the Bible tells us leaders should be assessed and evaluated. The Bible tells us that spiritual leaders should be assessed and evaluated first and foremost on their character. And then secondly, on their competence. So who the leader is matters more than what the leader can do in God's eyes. We see countless examples of that in scripture. We see the New Testament teaching us that that is how we should select elders and deacons and pastors and men and women who lead churches. And so we hope you know that when Mark comes up here, he comes up here, uh, just having really been marked uh, by the grace of the Lord, equipping him to be a man of character. I've seen in him in the time that I've known him just a humility and a teachability and a faithfulness um, that are clear evidence of the fact that the Lord is working in him. And so with that in mind, I hope that you know, we'll welcome Mark warmly today. Let me pray for us as we sit under Mark's preaching under the word of God together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make our hearts to be fertile soil to the truth of your word this morning. We pray that as the word is sown in us, that the plant that comes from that would be deeply rooted and strong and stable in that soil and that we would bear significant fruit for you and for your glory. In order for that to happen today, God, we need you to open our ears and open our eyes and soften our hearts to the truth of what you are saying through your word and through your servant this morning. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Well, thank you, Pastor James, and hope that doesn't deter you from listening to me too much that you found out I was a Duke fan. Carolina fans, I know you're excited about what happened yesterday, knocking out the Baylor Bears, and, but we'll see what happens today. I know we're in the throes of March Madness and so, anyways, but it really is a privilege to be able to... Uh, Speak God's word to you today. I just want to say thank you just for your welcome and hospitality to myself, my my wife, and our uh, little boy Tyler. I know you saw all of us up here on the stage a few weeks ago, and unfortunately Tyler was just having a meltdown. And we're like, you know, he really is a delightful child. You know, it didn't really look like that at the time, um, but uh, you guys have just really cared for us so well, and, and we're so grateful. And we are just learning so much uh, here during our time at Life Church uh, for what we believe that God will do in the coming days through our ministry at Resurrection Church in Statesville. And I do want to mention that I have uh, some family that are here today, along with uh, some folks from our, our church planting team at Resurrection sitting right over here. So, really grateful that you guys have joined us today, and we we'll hope you guys will be able to meet them as well before you take off. Uh, But as Pastor James mentioned, I received the opportunity to look at uh, Joshua chapters 13 and 14 with you. So I invite you to go ahead and find your way there. And as you do that, I want you to think about a time in your life that you moved from one place to another. Perhaps you decided to do that when you or your spouse accepted a new job. Maybe you did that in order to become closer to your family or to care for your aging parents, or maybe you moved when you were a child and so your parents made that decision and so you really just had to accept it and just go with them. Maybe you haven't moved in a long time or perhaps you've just moved recently within the last couple of years. For me, the first time that I experienced any kind of moving was when I was 18 years old and I moved away to go to college. And while the college I attended was only about two and a half hours from my parents' house, it was still a big step for me as I'd grown accustomed to living in one place in my entire life up to that point. However, after college, I I moved quite frequently there for some time in my 20s from living in an apartment to a townhouse to moving into a house that i lived in all by myself and i can remember during those days i felt the frustrations that come with a lack of permanence however when my wife Catherine and i moved into the, the home that we now live in about two years ago that was quite different It was quite different because for the first time in our lives, we were homeowners, and there was a special sense of stability and permanence that came with that move that we really had not experienced before. Perhaps that was you at one point, and you can remember what that was like, or you're aspiring to that in your life one day. But today, as we approach our text in Joshua 13 and 14, we're going to see how the people of Israel received their inheritance into the land that God had promised to them. Now, up to this point, the people had been in the wilderness desert for about 40 years, living a semi-nomadic kind of lifestyle. And so their sense of permanence was lacking. Yet, we're going to see how God was faithful to reveal His covenant promises to His people by bringing them into the land that they would call their own. And we will also see how God continues to be faithful to us as his covenant people today and how we should respond to him with hearts that trust his sovereign will and obey his purposeful commands. A couple of notes before we get into our scripture for this morning. I did want to just give you a bit of a context for where we are because we are making a significant shift in the book of Joshua. As Pastor James mentioned last week, chapters 11 and 12 in the first section that details Israel's conquest of the promised land. Chapter 11 detailed the final battle that Israel fought before they came into the land to settle, and subsequently chapter 12 provides a list of kings and nations that both Moses and Joshua defeated in order to obtain that land, which really serves as a kind of appendix to the first section. So beginning in chapter 13, we see the book shifts from the conquest of the land to the distribution of the land. And Israel receives the geographic boundaries for the specific areas they and their tribe would, would inhabit. But before we begin reading the text, I did just want to make the, the short note that as we come to a portion of Scripture like the one we are about to read, it can be tempting to just check out. Right? The reason for that is there are a lot of names and locations that we're not familiar with today. And therefore, it can be difficult to grasp the purpose behind these detailed records. However, I want to remind us that Scripture, when it speaks, it's always saying something important. And and to this, we're going to see the very promises of our sovereign God come to fruition through the means of these detailed recordings of where God's people would dwell in the land that he promised to them so let's remember that together as we aim to put our hearts in a place of devotion to God and to his word as we read it so i'm going to read joshua chapter 13 verses 1 through 7 for us which says now joshua was old and advanced in years And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Mirah that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites and the land of the Gebelites and all Lebanon. Toward the sunrise from Belgad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misrafoth Maim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. So, really, I have three points in our message this morning. And the first is, what we're going to see is the reality of God's promise, which is a land to possess. As we begin verse 1, we see that Joshua is advancing in years, and he's moving towards his retirement as Israel's military leader. So the Lord comes to Joshua, he speaks to him and he says there is still much land for the people to possess that he is giving to them. Now, at this point, we've got to understand the dynamic in how Israel has conquered enough kings and territories that enables them to move into the land and to settle there. However, there are still other nations, kings, and territories that are left for God's people to conquer in order to make this conquest final. So, beginning in verse 2 and then ending in verse 6, we see the Lord lists the nations that He intends for the people to drive out but as we read them, we see that there's a lot of people left, and therefore there's still a lot of work to be done but after the Lord lists the people who are left in the land, he makes a very interesting statement that's midway through verse six did you catch that he asserts the Lord does it he will be the one to drive out the people in the remaining portions of this land and this is important for us to understand in light of what we just mentioned about joshua he's aging and at this point he is not going to be israel's leader for much longer and as we process what's taking place here we should remember that the success of god's people is never dependent upon any one particular human leader while well, God used men such as Moses and now Joshua to accomplish his purposes in remarkable ways, we, we have to remember that it is God who ultimately does his work through his people as they obediently respond to him. In the following sentence, we see Joshua is given the directive to allot or distribute the land the Lord has given them as their inheritance. Now, As author David Howard points out, it's very striking to see how this command at the end of verse 6 parallels the command the Lord gives to Joshua at the beginning of the book. So uh, we're going to put that up on the screen for you. Joshua chapter 1 verse 2. I want to show us this parallel. I'll read verse 2 for us. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. So right here we see the Lord gives Joshua a command to take or to conquer the land. So that was the beginning of this first section. Now at the beginning of the second section of the book, the Lord gives Joshua another command, and that is to distribute it, chapter 13, verse 6. And we see that Joshua responds obediently to both of these commands, highlighting the devotion that he had for the Lord. As we see this, I think we can also understand more about what our obedience should look like as the people of God today. As we observe this pattern of Joshua's obedience, we also have to notice that Joshua did not do more than what God asked of him. In verse 6, the Lord tells Joshua that he will drive out the people from the land. He says to Joshua, though, to only divide up the land for the people. This is important. The Lord essentially tells Joshua it's not his responsibility to drive the rest of the people out of the land. He says, I will take care of that. By contrast, though, he does give Joshua the instructions to divide up the land as the people will move into it. I think this is important for us to note particularly because we can so often be prone to do more than what God has really asked of us or wants for us to do. This usually manifests itself by taking on too many responsibilities. Now, it's certain that our culture is busy, it's demanding, it's productivity-driven, and I think that makes us more susceptible to this particular vice. However, we must possess the conviction that we as the people of God are called to live counterculturally, and in that it includes an area such as this one now I certainly don't want to be misunderstood by saying that hard work and responsibility are not good things that is certainly not the case. Those are things that honor the Lord and what He wants for us. But what I am saying here is that when we crowd out our lives with too many responsibilities, then we neglect what is most important. Those who tend to gravitate towards this, and I would certainly put myself in that category, we're almost always well-intended, right? But we must realize that by taking on what God does not have for us, ends up fracturing our ability to steward what he does. So, might the Lord help us as we carefully examine our lives to see what might be causing pressure or fracturing in areas such as our devotion to Christ, to our family, to our local church? And when we uncover these places, might he give us both the grace and the strength to step away from what is oftentimes good in order to make room for what is best. Now, we presently find ourselves within a society that prizes what's now termed self-care. And while there are some commendable traits for this movement, we must also be aware that if we just wholeheartedly embrace that and champion that, then we're going to end up only perpetuating our own selfish and self-absorbed desires only to the neglect of what God desires for us. So practically speaking, this might mean that you need to uh, put aside some of the things that would be labeled self-care in order to embrace what's most honoring to God and what's going to be most beneficial for you. This could mean that your morning run has to be less frequent or that you need to stop staying up late binge-watching shows that you've seen a hundred times in order to get yourself up early to get into the Scriptures. For others of us, it could mean learning to say one of the most difficult words in the English language, which is no, to participate in clubs, committees, or even ministry opportunities in order to spend more time with family. God is, is sovereign. We have to remember this. God is sovereign and that He is in total control of our world. And because He's in control of the world, He is most certainly in control of our own lives. Therefore, He doesn't need us to meet all the needs that we see or solve all the problems. But He does call us to steward well the areas of responsibility that He has given to us. Now, at the end of verse 7, or in verse 7 here at the end of the section, we see that Joshua is given this command to distribute the land to the nine and one-half tribes. I want to explain that a little bit, particularly because we are going to skip over the, uh, the next portion in chapter 13 and move to chapter 14, but this really clues us in as to what is happening. You may know there are 12 tribes in Israel And uh, the reason, that we have the mention of these nine and one-half tribes is because back in Numbers 32, before Israel had entered into the Promised Land, some of the tribes asked Moses if they could settle outside of the land on the other side of the Jordan River before the people crossed the river into the land. That would be east if you would look on a map. So Moses does agree to their request, but he required them to cross the Jordan Uh, with the rest of the nation in order to aid the conquest of the land. So they agreed to this, and consequently the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and then part of the half-tribe of Manasseh inherited this land. And so the details for the boundaries of this land actually comprise verses 8 through 33 in chapter 13. And, And this was an area of land that Moses had already... Lotted or divided up for these two and one-half tribes. I would encourage you to read that uh, section at some point on your own, but we are going to move into Joshua chapter 14 right now as we see what the land distribution looks like or begins to look like for the others. So Joshua chapter 14 verses 1 through 5. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. And so we see the reality of, of what God had given his people. And secondly, now we're going to see the response of God's people, which is an obedience to divide and settle. Verse 1 demonstrates how Joshua is continuing the work that Moses began by distributing the land to these remaining tribes. Now, as I've mentioned, verse 3 explains uh, what Moses had just done here in the latter part of chapter 13. But then we see in verses 3 and 4 a pretty interesting note, and that's about the Levites. The tribe of Levi did not receive a territorial inheritance of land like the rest of the tribes did. Now, this is a really important detail that we're going to come back to, all right? So I want you to just hold on to that, and we'll return to it because it really is one of the most crucial pieces to this story, all right? And so well, I'm going to look at verse 5, though, for a moment, which actually explains the response of God's people. We see they responded obediently to the Lord's command. This command was originally given to Moses. Then it was passed on, and Joshua continued in that obedience to this generation. Now, I do want to point out just how remarkably, how is this part in the story really is such a high point in Israel's history. And I want us to lean into this and really see if we can capture what is is taking place here. So, as we would look back in Genesis 12, we won't actually turn there, but I just want to remind us that in that chapter, God came to a man who at the time's name was Abram. Later, it was changed to Abraham. And God gives Abraham this promise that he would make him into a great nation and that his descendants would one day possess this land. Now, it would be some time before this promise would come to fruition. God's people would encounter considerable challenges in the path towards receiving what was promised. Some of the challenges included things such as infertility, jealousy, deception, murder, slavery, and military defeat. And God's people did not always obey Him, but God was faithful to keep His promises. And right here, we see the tangible reality of his promise that was revealed to Abraham nearly 700 years before this moment. And we see here that the same God who was faithful to his people then is also faithful to us as his people today. So might we praise him for his faithfulness? We see that recorded in the scriptures, and we certainly see that in our own lives as well. Also, I don't want us to overlook the clear and profound detail that's included in verse 5, which is that the people obeyed what God had said. God gave them the command to distribute the land, and they did it. At first glance, this verse might not appear to be saying that much, but when we take a closer look, I believe that it's saying far more. Obedience is undoubtedly the most challenging aspect of the Christian life. If you think about it, it's relatively easy to uh, obtain more knowledge or information about the Bible, but it's far more difficult to apply the knowledge that you've learned. It doesn't help that popular Christian culture tends to perpetuate the idea that obedience is something that has to be large, sensational, extraordinary, But what we see in the scriptures far more often is something different. More often we see a pattern of small, regular, ordinary obedience from the people that God greatly uses. This example from Joshua serves to show us that no degree of obedience is too small or seemingly too large to please God or to make an impact. Right here we see the people essentially did the work of land surveyors to apportion the areas that God's people would live in. Now, this was not a miraculous work like when the people marched around the walls of Jericho and the walls came crashing down or the, the defeat of this immaculate army in northern Canaan where the kings uh, and, and nations teamed up and it said they covered the, the land like the sand of the sea. Yet God still gave Israel victory But I would say the degree of obedience that we see right here is no less significant. God values our obedience, no matter what role we have to play in his kingdom work. So let's think about that and how that might play out in our lives. For you, this could look like reading the Bible with someone who's a new believer. Or giving a book or recommending a podcast to someone you know who's a spiritual seeker or taking the time to serve a single mom who lives in your community. Uh, I love what the authors Tim Chester and Steve Timmis say when they write, most gospel ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Let's think about that. What if our communities needed less sensationalism from the church and more ordinary, everyday obedience by loving God and loving our neighbors? How different might Salisbury look? If Life Church wholeheartedly embraced this, I mean, how much, how differently would, would Salisbury look if Life Church did that? How different might Statesville look if Resurrection committed to engaging those around us like that? My hope and my prayer is that God would give our churches a harvest of disciples who are intent upon furthering the mission of God by making disciples in our community and in our world. That's God's intention for us, and that starts with simple, everyday obedience. Now, let's look at verses 6 through 15 in Joshua 14. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day saying, surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever. Because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunah, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. So, we've seen the reality of God's promise, the response of God's people. Now, I want for us to see the reward of God's servant, which is a choice inheritance. So, this section begins by detailing the distribution of land uh, for the tribe of Judah specifically. Now, that encompasses a larger portion of the book of Joshua that continues beyond where we're going to go today. That'll be a part of next week's message. But the focus of this section particularly is the inheritance of Caleb. Now, Caleb was one of the 12 spies in the land of Canaan in the book of Numbers. Caleb was also from the tribe of Judah. And we're going to see a request that he makes here. And it's one of the, really, I'd say it's just such a moving section within this book. And part of what makes the speech that he gives so special is that Caleb and Joshua have a deep history. You might know the story from Numbers 13 and 14, where there are 12 spies assigned to scout out the land for who is there and what the land is like. And after their scouting assignment is completed, the spies return, and 10 of the 12 spies provide a negative report because there are giants that live in the land, and there are fortified cities. They say because of this, they do not think they are capable of conquering the people and possessing the land. But the two other spies provided a different report. They believed that the Lord would be faithful to his promise, and that he would provide a victory for Israel in spite of these giants and the fortified cities. And along with Caleb, This other spy's name was Joshua, son of Nun. Here, Caleb is recounting to Joshua the events that took place now 45 years prior. He's essentially saying that you remember when you and I came back to the people that day. And there was this belief about the conquest, but we believed our God could do this. And now we stand here 45 years later in our Inheritance. God did what he said he would do. Joshua chapter 11, verse 21 clues us into a really key part uh, of what God did from where we were in numbers, where they were in numbers to now. It says, And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction. With their cities. Even the Anakim, these were the giants who seemed impenetrable. The Lord gave into the hand of Israel as Joshua followed the Lord, moved forward, and conquered the land. So Caleb, though, he goes on to assert that he's just as able to fight now, to continue to drive out the Canaanites as he was back then. He was saying this because apparently there were still some of the Anakim, these giants that were left in the land that he is requesting. And he says, hey, no problem. I I can drive them out. I'll take care of them. And that's exactly what he does over in Joshua 15, verses 13 through 19. But for these reasons, Caleb makes the ask to Joshua to inherit the land of Hebron, which is in Judah's territory. So in the very next verse, we then see Joshua's response he blesses Caleb and he gives him the land that he has requested. You've got to love Caleb as a character. As you think about it, he's been on this journey with Israel to get to the promised land for more than 40 years, but he doesn't check out and say, hey, I'm done. He says, no, I still got some fight left in me. I'm I'm ready to keep moving forward. He's 85 years old at this point. And he's really the kind of guy that just wants to die with his boots on. He's busy doing the Lord's work. These are the kind of men that we need to seek to be as the people of God. And These kind of men will change lives and transform legacies as Caleb does. Caleb's story should serve as an encouragement to each of us that no matter where we are in our lives or ministries, God is not finished doing his work through us. God can and God wants to use all of us. He wants to use children, teenagers, young adults, middle-aged adults, retirees, across the spectrum. We've all got a role to play. There's some of us who need to get to work. There's some of us who need to get off of autopilot or take it out of cruise control, while there are others of us who need to focus on finishing well. But as I read and reflect upon the ways that Caleb highlights the Lord's faithfulness through his request, I cannot help but think about my own life and how I aspire to believe in God in the midst of what seems like insurmountable circumstances. About a year ago, my family and I found ourselves at a crossroads. Uh, We lived in Statesville for about two and a half years doing ministry. And um, the initial door, though, that brought us into that ministry opportunity had closed. So, after this, we began to just pray and seek counsel from others about what our might, next step might be. And we explored the opportunity of moving away from Statesfield to do ministry and quite possibly planting a church a uh, considerable number of miles away. Yet, we, we sensed that the Holy Spirit was leading us to stay where we were and continue the work in our current context. Initially, as we began to gather a team, People were really excited. They couldn't wait to be a part of this new church in our community. Uh, But a few months into our progress of architecting this new church, we found ourselves with the majority of people who initially wanted to be a part of it, uh, saying they did not want to be. And so I would say those were just some of the most difficult days for our our family, as these are people that we loved, people that we didn't want to see walk away from uh, our church plants and subsequently our lives but as a result you can imagine that we were left with a lot of questions we wondered why god would have allowed something like this to happen we began to ponder whether or not we really made the right decision to pursue this endeavor perhaps this wasn't what god had for us and this was an indicative that we needed to transition and do something else However, despite these challenges, it was like the Holy Spirit's grip upon my heart to plant this church in our community was not going away. For supernatural reasons beyond myself, I, I believe, I still wanted to do this, and I felt that the Lord could still be leading us forward. So we stayed where we were, and we just said, Lord, we need your provision, and we're just going to seek to walk with you in obedience. And little by little, God began to provide from prayer and financial ministry partners that we continue to receive to new people we begin to meet who wanted to become a part of the church to the partnership that is now developing between Resurrection Church and Life Church. God is demonstrating His faithfulness to us. And we realize that we only need trust to trust Him and to walk in obedience to Him. Ultimately, I don't know what God will do through Resurrection Church. But I do know that Jesus promises to build his church. If resurrection has a small role to play in that promise, I would be absolutely thrilled to be a part of God's work in this way. But regardless of what the future holds, we want to emulate the example of someone like Caleb. Joshua chapter 14, verse 8, it says that he wholly followed the Lord as God. We want to be people like that, people who wholly follow the Lord wherever we are and whatever circumstances that we find ourselves in. And we see that Caleb's lifetime of trust in the Lord uh, produced a legacy. What might God do if you and I choose to walk in this way over the course of a lifetime? What might he do in our lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of our church family, in the lives of those that we raised up and that we sent out to proclaim the gospel so that others might know him around the world. Might that be the desire of each of our hearts, like Caleb, when we get to 85 years old, to say, I'm ready to keep going. I'm ready to serve Jesus in whatever way he has me next. And, and as we do that, the Lord will prove himself to be faithful. So may we respond to him in obedience, in light of his faithfulness. So as we see what God has done for his people within this passage, I do want to take us back to... Joshua 14, verses 3 and 4. Once again, it explains how the tribe of Levi did not receive a territorial land inheritance like the other tribes did. But back in Joshua chapter 13, uh, verse 33, (coughs) we see a particular detail that will clue us in here to more of what's happening. It says, the Lord God of Israel is their inheritance. So by reading this, we are alerted that the physical land of Israel was not their primary inheritance rather it was the Lord himself and the reality that the people possessed God himself that was their ultimate reward and that was demonstrated through the levites so For us as God's people today, we must realize how much more we possess as our inheritance through the redemption that we have received through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 verses 11 through 14, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Also, we see more about our inheritance in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So as God gave this land to his people as a gift, he gives himself as a gift to us today. His grace is a gift to us, and despite the reality that we were dead in our sins and in our idolatry, he provided for us through the sacrificial substitution of his son Jesus. And not only does God's grace save us, God's grace is what sustains us. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says that God's grace trains us in righteousness. It's not a moral set of laws that brings our hearts into alignment with Him, but rather it is the grace that He gives us, namely through Himself. Not only this, but the faith that we receive to respond to Him is a gift as well. Romans 3.10 talks about how there is no one who seeks after God. Yet God comes to us, he illuminates our hearts, and he enables us to respond to him in order to receive his gift of grace. So as we participate in the Lord's table this morning, let us remember our inheritance. As we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, Let's celebrate the reality that Jesus has taken away our sin, our shame, our guilt, so that we might know him and that we might walk with him together with his people of the new covenant, the church. God is faithful, so might we respond to him with hearts that trust his sovereign will and obey his purposeful commands. Let's pray together. Jesus... We are thankful for your grace and the inheritance that we have received today as your people. Uh, Lord, might you just, um, may, our, may our hearts be um, just transformed by that reality today. Lord, I pray that we would bask in the grace and the mercy that we received in you. And, and I ask that would change us as we think about uh, how we should respond today because of the work that you have done for us on our behalf. Thank you that you make us new, that you've given us the gift of grace and the gift of faith so that we might respond to you. Uh, We're we're never good enough. We can never do anything good enough uh, to, to, to earn this. It's only been given to us as a gift. So we say, thank you, Jesus. We are grateful. May we respond together collectively today as we aim to worship you spirit and in truth. Your good name. Amen.